Jingophilia. Hello, fellow Anglophiles. Welcome to Anglophilia. I'm Kaylee McMahon. I'm Stephanie Callis. And today we are going to be talking about a movie that everyone, shall I say, worships <laughs> Life of Brian. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> The one thing I do want to say at the top is that as soon as you and I stopped recording last week, I remembered I do in fact know what happens at the end of Life of Brian, okay, which I had so earnestly said to you last time, oh, I don't remember. But uh, <laughs> that would be like I thought, not oh, remembering fuck. what happens at the end of Titanic. Although Titanic ends a couple of times, doesn't it? I just meant like the ship sinks. But anyway. <laughs> no, I hear you. Anyhow, Anyhow. <laughs> shall we begin? Yes. Monty Python's Life of Brian is a 1979 religious satire comedy starring and written by the members of Monty Python and directed by my man, Terry Jones. <laughs> uh, the film tells the story of Brian Cohen, brilliantly played by Graham Chapman, a young Jewish man who was born on the same day as and next door to Jesus Christ. Hilarity ensues, and um, no one got upset about this at all. No one was <laughs> upset by it at all. So while the guys were promoting Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they were repeatedly asked when their next movie would be coming out and what it would be called. So Eric Idle began jokingly announcing their next film was going to be called Jesus Christ, lust for glory. Um, but they ended up sticking with the idea of making a biblical epic, and the final draft was actually written in 1977 in Barbados, where they were all kind of on a work vacation together. Uh, the movie was filmed on location in Tunisia, and shortly before the cast and crew were set to leave, one of the heads at EMI Films canceled the financing because he feared the movie would be too controversial to make a profit. Uh, the film's savior turned out to be George Harrison of the Beatles, who put up $4 million of his own money and set up the production company Handmade Films to make it all official. Um, he later said that he simply wanted to see the movie. That's, that's rock and roll, guys. Hell yeah. So... Right away, there's a huge difference, obviously, between this and Holy Grail, and you can see the budget increase instantly. It looks gorgeous. Just from that first shot of the camels against the starry sky, it's it's instantly just a really, really beautiful movie, whereas I feel like Holy Grail was sort of accidentally beautiful. Like it's, it's more scrappy, and this is a lot more polished. First, there's the shot of the three wise men coming to the infant in the manger, but of course they go to the wrong infant, and we meet Mandy Cohen, Brian's mother. Mandy Cohen, that is... I, Mandy Cohen is kind of a, an ultimate, like, ugly Terry Jones woman oh, yeah. who's just sort of hunched over and shrieking yes. and angry. Yeah, she, she's the uber pepper pot. <laughs> <laughs> the three wise men showing up to the wrong manger... I kind of feel like that must be something that pissed people off, no? Even though I see it as completely innocuous, it's the wrong manger. Yeah, They're not see, making I fun of Jesus. That, that should quash any controversy at all, because it's very clear from the get-go that this is not about Jesus. There's nothing actually blasphemous. There's nothing against God or against the Messiah or against any of the teachings of Jesus, which all of these people agree with, because they're pretty, you know, good, common-sense kind of stuff but it's the way that the followers twist and misinterpret it that becomes the, the fodder for all of this comedy. Which, you know, not unironically is what happened in, in life. 
just throngs of people making the wrong assumption about what this movie's about and getting it banned in parts of the country all over Ireland and, like, Norway. Down with this sort of thing. <laughs> you, yeah. No, seriously. No, it's, it's, crazy. it's fascinating to me. And so, yeah, you know, the, the three wise men show up and, you know, they once they realize their mistake, they take the gifts back and get to the correct manger, which is fine. It, it problem solved. Yeah. This first scene is just fantastic. Oh, fantastic. And sets up the rest of the movie so well. Are you astrologers, are you? Well, what is he then? Hmm? What star sign is he? Capricorn. Ah, Capricorn, eh? What are they like? He is the son of God, our Messiah, King of the Jews. That's Capricorn, is it? Uh, No, 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 that's just him. Oh, I was going to say, otherwise there'd be a lot of them. (laughs) See, this this is the movie that way more so than Holy Grail, I am in danger of just quoting like an awkward 12-year-old boy, so please prevent me from doing that. You know what? I have no problem with you quoting it. Okay. I really don't. I kind of am going to encourage it. Until you start interrupting everything I say, just so you can quote very loudly. Only then will you start to remind me of a a teenage boy. Well, thank you. And speaking of a teenage boy, next we have the phenomenal title sequence. There we go. I love that song so much. It's really good. It's epic. The lyrics are really funny, but the music is also so stirring. My heart just soars when I hear it. He had arms. For me, it was also kind of one of the biggest moments of, ooh, it's 1979 now. They got a little bit of that George Harrison money. Also, just looking at the title sequence, this is one of only two bits of Terry Gilliam animation, the other being the aliens. Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's less overtly goofy than the Holy Grail credit sequence with all of the subtitles about the moose and everything, but it does instantly set the tone because... You know, we see all of these images from this period and everything breaks. Every single thing gets smashed. We have all of these statues and buildings and columns that crumble. And it's just the perfect visual metaphor and the way to send the message that nothing here is sacred. It's sort of like, you know, thematically like a little echo of the giant foot in Flying Circus and the fart noise that stomps everything at the very end. It's it's that same sort of punk, we don't give a fuck message. And even the angel ascending into heaven at the end when it gives Terry Jones's directing credit gets shot out of the sky. So we know that we're in for some delightfully irreverent and somewhat blasphemous chaos from the get-go. Do you kind of wonder, though, if maybe that image is, to our modern secular eyes, perhaps the most blasphemous? Because, again... Because there's nothing it's not about blasphemous. Jesus. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. The beginning and the end, if you think about the opening credits and the closing song as bookends that are sort of like, don't take this too seriously. And of course, what did the people who were always going to do that do? They took it too damn seriously. <laughs> oh, and, and righteously, and they banded together and actually got this thing. I don't know. They, they took action. They didn't yeah. just waste time and talk about it. You know, talking about the images that are going to make people nervous, the opening of the movie following the cold open and the titles, it's the only time we see Jesus. Mm -hmm. And he's delivering the Sermon on the Mount, which they have not altered in any way. Jesus is the ultimate straight man in this, and not a funny one. And not a funny one, and he's not meant to be, and we see him for only several seconds. He doesn't return after this. And... The comedy is not in making fun of his message. The comedy is in pointing out that, hey, if this really happened, 
maybe there would have been people way in the back who couldn't hear him. That's the whole thing. Exactly. It's Jesus adjacent. It's not at all about the birth, life, or death of Christ. It is Christ adjacent. But anyway, yeah, I just love the clever, you know, oh, well, what would it have been like to have been in the back row for the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> That's great. Exactly. Yeah, it's realistic. And it also just points out the, the human nature, how even when people are trying to listen to these grand ideas and better themselves, what do they all do? They instantly start bickering and we've got Mr. Cheeky and Big Nose getting into an argument and punches are thrown and, you know, they're just caught up in their own little petty squabbles. And I think that it's a really clever little way of, I mean, it, 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 how, how could anybody possibly think that this is blasphemous to Jesus? I just, my, my mind boggles thinking about that. It's fascinating to me as well. But I mean, when you consider that you're looking at people who are perfectly fine with being told how to think, mm. maybe yeah. it just takes kind of one angry bishop yelling about something. You go, oh, right, down with this sort of thing. He needs to be kicked up the arse. Yes. So going back to the idea of how, you know, Jesus is not a source of humor in this. The plan originally was to write something about Jesus. And in rewriting the script, it got progressively farther and farther away because they realized that Jesus isn't funny. There's nothing that you can make fun of about him because you can't make fun of people for being good and virtuous. That's not where comedy comes from. Comedy comes from people being flawed. So the idea of Brian as being someone who was living a life adjacent to Jesus was born out of the fact that they really couldn't mine any comedy from Christ himself. In an interview, Michael Palin said that the kind of jokes that they were thinking about were, again, not about Jesus, but about everything happening around him. And the example mm -hmm. he used was trying to get a table for 12 for the Last Supper. And the host saying, <laughs> I can get you three fours tomorrow. No, 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 it has to be tonight. Like that yes, kind of thing. be sitting on the same side, yes. Yeah, again, like not... Not about Jesus, right. just about the logistics of, of everything else, which is, how is yeah. that not fair game? God, I feel like we're <laughs> going to say this 40 more times, but I don't know. I feel like it sort of bears mentioning because the 70s are funny. They were so long ago and yet not really. So much incredible change and progress took place during that decade and just before, and yet not at not all. Really. <laughs> and I feel like that's why... We keep looking at the 60s and 70s in America for the music and the film and the politics and who the inspiring people were. And it can sort of fill you with hope and also fill you with despair. And the, the life of Brian controversy, I mean, I, I kind of wonder if the movie could even get made today. Maybe it would be straight to Netflix or something like that. <laughs> At the tail end of this scene, this is where we first see our first glimpse of the people's front of Judea. Brian and Mandy decide, since they can't hear the sermon, they decide to leave and go to a stoning. But on the way, we hear Reg and the other revolutionaries passing by. And we hear say, what, what he fails to understand is that it's the meek who are the problem. And I wrote that line down. Because it's so typical of, like, people who, you know, blame the poor for owning cell phones or blame millennials for buying too many avocados or, you know, blame <sighs> women for, you know, say, like, stop apologizing, lean in instead of blaming the oppressors and saying, hey, maybe lean out, maybe stop buying more yachts and private planes and pay your workers a fair wage. Yeah, there are a lot of things that the revolutionaries say that are, uh, and accurate representation of conversations we're still very much having oh a hundred percent there okay there's good. some i mean i can't i can't say that they're my favorite part because every part of this movie is my favorite part but it's yeah they're spot yeah. on 
so we catch back up with Brian and his mom on the way to the stoning. And so Mandy has to stop and buy a beard from a vendor on the street because Mm -hmm. women aren't allowed to attend stonings. And I love that there are so many women in disguise at the stoning and you can hear their, their girly voices. Are there any women here? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> he's just so funny. He's so funny in this whole movie. And you know, he originally wanted to play Brian and everyone else kindly talked him out of it and said, no, it should be Graham. And of course, there's no other person who could have played. I mean, you know, like we said, when we talked about him doing King Arthur, he's the perfect, not even straight man, because Brian's actually a very funny character as well, but he's the perfect anchor and center for these movies. There's a certain seriousness and integrity that he has that I think the others don't. And also John Cleese is so valuable in all those smaller, more comedic roles. And this is obviously no exception. Yep. This whole scene where everybody keeps saying Jehovah, it's it's perfect sketch writing. It's really, really funny how everybody is a hypocrite because everybody wants to, you know, cast their stones at people who are doing things that they themselves are then guilty of and the perfect button where John Cleese says even and I want to be perfectly clear even if they do say Jehovah and then he gets stoned and then you see like five or six women coming with that giant man-sized rock it sort of made me think of Twitter or maybe not even Twitter <laughs> specifically, but it sort of just made me think of how public outrage is oh, just yeah. so much more intense than it was really ever probably meant to be. Like, this oh is unnatural. God, we are exposed to an unnatural yeah. amount of and outrage. Call-out culture, yeah. Call-out culture and and everything like that. And um, Remember Justine Sacco? And how people fucking ruined her life for making that not good joke, but it was clearly also a joke. She wasn't- Dude, I didn't follow her on Twitter. Why would I ever follow her on Twitter? I had never heard of her in my life. I didn't know her personally but she was or, getting, like, or, death or through her career. But I happened to be listening to the radio on my drive home and the DJ implored listeners to go on Twitter and- throw stones at her yeah exactly it's the exact opposite of jesus's message of let he who is without sin cast the first stone yeah i mean yeah terrible joke i never would have read it if someone hadn't told me to go check it out the whole viewing a stoning the you know or public executions in general there is this really dark ugly animalistic side of us that has some bloodlust and and likes to rally around together against not even a common enemy because you know this this man who is a blasphemer he doesn't actually pose any threat to anybody but it's just it's this really base kind of mob mentality that uh that certainly twitter tends to um satisfy i i would never want to watch public execution that's just no it's it's horrible (laughs) you know it was it was a form of entertainment and it's still you know, in less overt or literal ways, but, you know, the idea of mass online public shaming of somebody for not even a horrible crime, but for, like, a, a misstep. Yeah. Because that's the thing. It's not, like, if, if this guy had been, like, a murderer or a rapist, then, like, yeah, I could kind of maybe get behind stoning him to death. But, you know, it's the same thing with, like, I, I'm perfectly in favor of, like, shaming Trump online, even though he seems impervious to all criticism thrown at him. But, you know, Justine Sacco didn't really do anything she didn't cause any harm no it's a disproportionate response like to the extreme and it's the same thing with this like death that that you could receive death for saying something that doesn't ultimately do any harm and that's again this is why it it just it's so ironic and funny that 
Christians were so offended by this yeah. because it makes fun of Christ, which it doesn't. And like for them to even to, to see this scene and to not see themselves in it, to not see, oh, maybe I'm taking this a little too seriously. Maybe it's a little bit weird that people are offended when someone takes the Lord's name in vain. Yeah. And again, this was a stoning. They weren't stoning Jesus. <laughs> no. Jesus wasn't stoning anyone. This was something that, you know would have been happening in the time of Jesus's life. Exactly. So next we have the ex-leper. body Hottie. <laughs> I knew bit. you were going to bring that up. <laughs> well, you knew I was going to bring it up because you didn't notice it. Well, you know this. The male form does nothing for me. To me, the more clothed, the sexier, so. I was just going to say I was a little bit surprised and impressed. Mm-hmm. Michael Palin had a decent rig on him. <laughs> you wouldn't really guess, you know. Yeah. And of course, since he's since he's adorable and intelligent and hilarious, it kind of heightens everything, you know. Yeah, that was no, all okay. He's, no, he's cute. That's that's just such a, that's a really really funny scene. And something that I love about this, this was the first scene where I really noticed the lack of animation transitions, and it's because it ends with that perfect punchline. There's no pleasing some people. That's just what Jesus said, sir. It's it's such a, you know, they, they finally get to classic sketch form where they have a running joke for, you know, two or three minutes, and then they cap it off with a punchline. And every si- the end of every single scene, it ends on a laugh, except for, you know, the more dramatic stuff later in the plot. But there wasn't really any need for those Terry Gilliam transitions, which is why it's confined just to that one alien scene and the opening credits. Yeah. And the next, Brian learns that his father was a Roman. <laughs> yes. And then he says, you mean you were raped? And I don't remember what his mom, what Mandy says in response. Says, Does she say not? Well, at, at first, yes. Right. <laughs> That's one of the only rape jokes that I will still stand by because it is really funny. Because well, it's, more, it's more a character thing than an actual, because obviously... Rape doesn't turn into consensual sex. That's not a thing that really happens. Oh, I think that that rape joke is justifiable because Brian is outraged and horrified to hear it, mm-hmm. which is good because you can't, mm-hmm. you, you really shouldn't be able to extricate the horror from something like that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, Mandy's a weird lady. <laughs> I don't know. It was, I thought it was funny. And then do we have the children's matinee at the Coliseum? Mm-hmm. And that's where we have that other... That other conversation. Yes, we have the proper introduction to the PFJ. I think Judith's point of view is very valid, Rach, provided the movement never forgets that it is the inalienable right of every man or woman or woman to rid himself or herself or herself. Agreed. Thank you, brother. Or sister. Or sister. Where was I? I think you finished. Oh, right. Furthermore, it is the birthright of every man or woman. Why don't you shut up about women, Stan? You're putting us off. Women have a perfect right to play a part in our movement, Reg. Why are you always on about women, Stan? I want to be one. What? I want to be a woman. From now on, I want you all to call me Loretta. What? It's my right as a man. But why do you want to be Loretta, Stan? I want to have babies. You want to have... Babies? It's every man's right to have babies if he wants them. But you can't have babies! Don't you oppress me. I'm not oppressing you, Stan. You haven't got a womb. Where's the fetus gonna just take? You're gonna keep it in a box? I saw this sort of very accurate depiction of white 
cis male liberals mm-hmm. all uniting and having a very specific enemy that they want to take down, you know, whatever's oppressing them. And then the feminism, they kind of have to be continually reminded that there's there's women too who face this oppression and even worse so because they're women. And yeah. then maybe a trans person comes in and just confuses everyone and everyone gets too angry to stay on the same path. Do you feel like that's kind of something that is yeah. happening all the time? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I think that oh, the, these these characters are so funny and they point out so much of what's problematic about uh, you know, re- revolutions and and different causes and and activists. Um I actually think the Stan Loretta conversation is pretty sensitively handled. They still stand by her and correctly name and gender her for the rest of the movie. They do. Uh, it's it's funny and and while also being respectful. And it also does point out, like, you know, her reason for wanting to be called Loretta is to something that is biologically impossible. But it's very sweet that Judith, the woman, is the one who who finds a way to sort of bring it all together and get everybody on the same page about how it's symbolic and we can fight for your right to have babies, even if you can't actually do it. So Yeah, that was surprisingly... I I think it's hysterical and also, like, pretty ahead of its time. Yeah, but again, I can see why people would just sort of want to see that only one way and then throw stones at it oh yeah kind of like christians it's funny like the the people on the extreme right or the extreme left will find fault with absolutely anything because nothing and no one is perfect right for this movie in my opinion do you hear what i'm saying that i kind of feel like this conversation is happening right now oh it's absolutely happening right now another thing that that i really want to talk about the only people we ate more than the romans are the fucking judean people front yes. 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 and the judean popular people front oh, yes. 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 Split. Split. and the people's front of judea yes. the people's front of judea splitters we're the people's front of judea it's the problem with the left in general the right will like the right united behind Donald Trump, who's the single most, I mean, problematic is an understatement, but Mm. like the worst candidate ever in the history of American politics on that scale. Yes. And meanwhile, the left is so fractured. I mean, our diversity is our strength, but our, I don't want to say that it's also our downfall because I still think that it is ultimately a good thing. And I don't think that, I think that people who accuse identity politics as being the reason that we lose is, is the problem because it's really... Like, what is white supremacy or sexism, if not identity politics, if not judging people based on the bodies that they were born into and the factors that they have no control over? Oh, yeah. Um, But, and it feels like a very, you know, like, straight white cis man thing to say, like a Bill Maher thing to say, like, you gotta stop being so PC because, meanwhile, Republicans are blah, blah, blah. Like, that that's not a helpful thing. But I do Here's think Bernie that, Sanders to talk about the struggle well, of Bernie the middle Sanders, class, you no, know? Exactly. Well, so, so that's what I'm saying is that, like, how, how do progressives, even to this day, so-called progressives, still hate Clinton more than Trump? How do they still, like, there are still people who say, well, at least we don't have Hillary. And it's a huge problem. And I think that it's something that, you know, all of the the internal squabbles of the various revolutionary causes, that's why they never defeat the Romans. And it's really, they, they forget what the true target of their rage should be. 
Yeah, that's a problem that is, I think, unique to the left. The right always knows, I mean, they have the, trust me, they have the wrong idea of what their enemy is, but they at least agree on it. Completely. But then, but that is also, in, in addition to being so politically on point and eternally relevant, uh, there's just a lot of other great comedy in that. Just just the little, yeah. like, you know, <laughs> if you want to be with us and you got to really hate the Romans, I do, oh yeah, how much? A lot. Right, you're in. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's such was... good timing. It's such good, like, a child could grasp it. Again, like with all of their stuff, they've got the really sophisticated humor and the very easy to understand childlike stuff. It's not yeah. quite as whimsical as the rest of their stuff, but it is like a five year old could laugh at that line. Yeah, and yeah, I completely. For it. So, next, what happens is that Brian is tasked with writing Romans Go Home. With the graffiti. And so we have the fantastic Latin lesson with the, the, the centurion, John Cleese, catches him in the act and... Romanes aeunt domus. People call Romanes, they go the house. It, it says Romans go home. No, it doesn't. What's Latin for Roman? Come on, come on. Romanus? Goes like... Annus? Pocketed plural of Annus is... Annie? Romani... Aunt, what is aunt? Go. Conjugate the verb to go. Uh, here, uh, is it imus idis aunt. So aunt is uh, uh, third person plural, uh, present indicative. Uh, they go. But Romans go home is an order, so you must use the yeah, imperative, which is um um um, um e, e. How many Romans? It's it's so funny. This is a movie that makes me wish that I spoke Latin, even though obviously I get the joke without having actually had those exact lessons. Because, you know, anybody who studies a foreign language knows about, you know, verb conjugations and various tenses and things like that. There was some documentary that I was watching where a British comedian was saying that that was one of his favorite scenes in the movie. And he said, and I, you know, I don't understand like how, because I remember those Latin lessons. How do Americans laugh at that? Like, how do they find that funny? And that just reminded me of something we talked about when we were talking about Abfab. It's like, you don't have to have actually literally experienced the exact same thing to understand the joke. Like, it, it yeah. might hit a little bit closer to home if I had had a Latin lesson in my life. But, like, the fundamental joke still translates. It's, it's the same thing about how all of their humor, these guys are so well-educated and so smart and so well-informed. But, like, you don't have to know as much as they do in order to get their humor nothing goes well, over your head it's it's entertainment that is widely accessible but also allows you to feel very smart right plus there was a time in in our life where you and i did in fact have to learn how to write in english <laughs> and uh... yes so next we have the meeting that has the fantastic what have the romans ever done for us scene. yes turns out a lot this is such a oh this is so funny this is actually i think my dad's favorite or at least most oft quoted scene in the movie he it's relevant to so many situations in life they let us white the bastards they've taken everything we had and not just from us from our fathers and from our fathers fathers and from our fathers 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 yeah and from our fathers 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 don't labor the point and what have they ever given us in return the aqueduct? What? The aqueduct. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct and the sanitation are two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine? Yeah. 
Education. Yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, that's something we've really missed, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> all right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, peace! Shut up! As with all of their best sketch writing, like, it's such a simple idea of just, oh, like, what else? You know, whether it's the Spanish Inquisition or the cheese shop or something like that where it's just you, you repeat the same thing over and over and you keep, like, a running list. But, God, it's just timelessly hysterical. It's, it's yes. such good writing. Yes. So then they come up with the plan to kidnap Pilate's wife. And then while there, they have a run in with a different terrorist group in the same place in, in the palace. And this is where it gets really funny because, again, they fight with each other, even as Brian encourages them all to work together. Mm-hmm. It's such a spot on send up of the internecine and squabbles that happen within any group, whether it's, you know, a, an activist group for a specific cause or whether it's, you know, religious sects. And that, that, that gets parodied more specifically later on. But yeah, struggling towards a common goal, but pulling off in different directions and hating each other. Shouldn't we be struggling like against our, our common enemy? And they all say, the Judean people's front. Yeah. It's so good. But Brian gets thrown in a cell with Michael Palin, who's been chained to a wall upside down for years and was only put upright the other day. <laughs> it's very much the whole, oh, back in my day when I was your age, you don't know how good you've had it. And it, it is a very funny, typical old man archetype that we're familiar with. But again, it's so politically on point because it's all about hating and resenting the people who have it better off than you, but who are oppressed by the same people that are oppressing you. But he has nothing but admiration for the Romans. It's so it's like hating and resenting millennials or immigrants or any other scapegoat group while worshiping the the billionaires or the people who are actually respond directly responsible for whatever your suffering is. But then at the end, he says, you know, terrific race, the Romans, terrific. It's it's really heartbreaking, but it's also yeah. such a perfect example of the societal Stockholm syndrome that so many people face. Completely. I mean, the generalizations that I hear being made regularly about young people today and how we don't do this, we don't do that, we've never worked a day in our lives. It's kind of like... Who are these young people you know who aren't working and where can I go ask them what their fucking secret is? <laughs> secret um, is being born to billionaires. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll Pontius say it Pilate. again. <laughs> He's the next the next scene is where we finally meet Pontius Pilate. And you know, right before this, I was thinking about all of these political things. I was thinking about the brilliant characterization of all of these groups that are struggling against oppression, but, you know, stepping on their own feet in the process and all of the misdirected rage and resentment and, you know, the, the various religious points that they're making. And I was like, this is definitely like their most sophisticated and grown up. I mean, for, forget about like, obviously, they also have like a very linear plot for the first time ever. And, you know, the Latin lesson is very sophisticated. And I was like, this is, I guess Python's really like grown up. There's nothing really too childish. And then we have Biggest Dickus. Biggest Dickus. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> me of little faith. I, yep, okay, we're back. <laughs> I, I can't believe I forgot that that was what was next. <laughs> well, and even just Pontius's stupid speech impediment. Oh, it's so wonderful. Yeah. Y yeah. My father was a Roman. Your father was a woman. 
<laughs> Such a good character. No, it's uh, it's good. Yeah. And also, okay, so a while ago when we were talking about the poet reader sketch in season mm-hmm. two, you were saying, I was looking very closely to see if Michael Palin was cracking at all, but he didn't. But this is the one time that I think you can see him coming close to cracking when he gets all up in that one guard's face. And he says, what is funny when I say the name Bigus? Dickus. And like, you can see this is the tiniest little corner of a Mona Lisa smile pulling at his lips. And I was like, ha, Michael, I caught you. <laughs> You're human like the rest of us. It's oh so man, good. I should, I should go take another look at it because I really, really love that scene. Yeah. And then how stupid he has a wife, you know, I thought of tubs. <laughs> Did you think of tubs? Incontinentia buttocks. Incontinentia buttocks. <laughs> it's so sense buttocks is a funny word i don't care buttocks is always no, going to be a really everything funny ab- word everything about that scene everything about that scene is so funny and it's really lucky that like everybody except for michael palin was allowed to not keep a straight face because it would have been so hard you know if you had to maintain like a a beef eater level equanimity in the face of michael palin getting up in your face and saying that stuff it's good that it was written into the script that they had to laugh because yes how could you not biggest Dickus. And then next, we have them chasing Brian up the unfinished tower, and then he takes a leap of faith and gets briefly abducted by aliens, which I, that was the only part of the movie that I had completely forgotten about, to the point that even when I saw it again, it didn't jog any memory. I was like, this is, this happened? What? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's the most random and zany hint of old Python that we get. I don't want to read too much meaning into it, but I know that we've not necessarily found proof of big green blobs who who, who fly yes. around in very sophisticated, you know, spacecraft. But just the idea of, of science in general and scientific exploration and discovery and, you know, hypotheses versus mm-hmm. the creation story is also something that occurred to me, even though this does not at any point specifically deal with the creation story right. ever. Well, yeah, it's like four. But it was kind of something that made me think of is just um, the Bible and science. And again, I I know that green blobby aliens aren't science per se, but you know, they're science fiction. But yeah, no, it is it is funny because yeah, we don't we don't have proof of alien life. We also don't have definitive proof that there is no alien life. Just like we don't have proof of God, but we can't disprove God's existence either. It's all about faith. And Mm -hmm. it is interesting that people who would say, oh, yeah, Jesus absolutely walked on water and turned water into wine and came back to life after three days. But aliens, that's ridiculous. It's everybody picks and chooses what is silly to them. Yeah. Although I don't think that the people who were abducted by aliens in the 90s necessarily were probed anally. Although it's strange that they all had that in common. I mean, (laughs) they got their story straight. Isn't that weird? (laughs) What could aliens learn by probing anally? (laughs) I think that there's actually a Simpsons joke where in a Halloween special... Homer gets abducted and he he drops his pants. They said, please, no, we've reached the limits of what we can learn from probing. I was like, yeah, that's a good point. Because like, really, what's, what is the point? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I remember watching some kind of, you know, true story of the abduction. And it was not just the probe up the ass. It was like semen samples and all kinds of weird sex stuff. And I just thought, you know... <laughs> For as intelligent and, you know, incredible as these aliens are, they haven't really figured out anesthesia, have they? Because everyone remembers all this and they're talking about it on TV. So (laughs) maybe try to cook that one up next. Oh, man. 
<laughs> anal probing. Bring it back. That was hilarious. <laughs> All right. But they take him back. They do not probe his anus. Yes. And then we see a bunch of wannabe prophets. My favorite, of course, is the boring prophet. At this time, a friend shall lose his friend's hammer. And the young shall not know where lie the things possessed by their fathers that their fathers put there only just the night before, about 8 o'clock. I don't know if you get this in places that don't have public transportation, but on a maybe not daily basis, but at least a weekly basis, I am exposed to subway preachers. And oh, they hell are yes. a colorful bunch. Uh, it's... <laughs> I've had I've had some interesting ones. In fact, just the other day, right after I had watched this, I was riding home and there was some guy who who kept talking about, you know, the the usual like the only way to the kingdom of heaven is to accept Jesus blah blah blah. And then he said something about how like cell phones are controlling our minds and that's how the beast is going to control us and it's already happening in oh, Europe. Man. But everybody does have these weird, you know, based on this really ancient and largely irrelevant text i'll say it that has been translated from its original language like you don't know what it originally said because it wasn't written in english and it wasn't written by god or by jesus it's all like you know it, it's like a game of telephone basically and all of these people have some familiarity with it and just take it off in their own crazy direction whether it's the you know the fire and brimstone gays are going to hell ones those are my least favorite or just the the really wacky ones like this cell phone beast dude <laughs> like that's yeah. still, that shit's still going on two thousand years later. Well, one of my favorite moments from a kind of famous episode of a British talk show called Friday Night and Saturday Morning, which has a very sexy introduction. Check check Ooh, that out. I, I want don't know. You. <laughs> you there's a couple in bed and they start getting it on and then they decide to watch TV instead. What? Okay, wait. Oh. All right, I'm not going to pause this, but I'm going to look it up as soon as... Remind me. Okay, keep talking. <laughs> there is there is definitely a close-up of a man's, you know, bare, rugged back and his woman's fingers, you know, digging into it. And Are you, you kind of sure go... you're describing a cut flying circus sketch? I'm not! I'm describing <laughs> real life! I believe you. Continue. They probed me! Okay. Um... <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of probing, let's get to those probing questions that were. But they have John Cleese and Michael Palin and this hilarious fucking bishop, I have to say, <laughs> and this satirist and journalist, Malcolm Mugridge, who, for a satirist, I mean, we'll talk more about it, but he did not get the satire of Life of Brian, I'll, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but um, John Cleese and Michael Palin, to their credit, are very respectful and they let these goofs slagged their movie for what seems like forever. Mm -hmm. But one of the great sort of deadpan barbs that John Cleese definitely gets in is, you know, he's just asking these innocent questions of this humorist satirist mm -hmm. and this bishop. And he says, did they get it right when Mark wrote it down 30 years later when they're discussing the Sermon on the Mount? Mm -hmm. And um, just the idea of questioning things and questioning what you're reading in the Bible, because, mm -hmm. yeah, did, did they get it right when Mark wrote it down? 30 years later it was all in the delivery of like you guys are completely mm. hanging on every word of this but but how could you possibly logistically please yeah. this was written down secondhand decades after the fact i made air quotes in the air yes. with my fingers <laughs> anyhow 
that related to what you were saying. I don't remember oh. how, but, but oh, it did. No, I, I believe you. Yeah, I didn't I didn't watch that, but I did see little clips of it in a documentary. And I remember one of my favorite little jabs from Michael Palin was when so, some religious guy was saying something really stupid. He said, like, at the beginning, you know, I was giving it to good a chance. And then he said, oh, yeah, I realize you started with an open mind. And I was like, yes, snaps, <laughs> Mikey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's, that's the bishop. And I know I sent this to you a little while ago, but it was before I watched the real one, but not the nine o'clock news did a fantastic yes oh um, yes oh god I, and and to see the real bishop and then to see rowan atkinson's interpretation of <laughs> him it's mm, i drink it up mm. anyway um <laughs> but yeah that introduction let me know let me know if that uh sort of shocked you as much as it shocked me Oh, All right. We're such American prudes. I know, but I don't know how necessary that. Oh God! I mean, I mean, listen to me. Anyway. Well, you know, <laughs> sex sells. Maybe it's like that. Uh, that lecture about 18th century legislation with Carol Cleveland in the bed. Maybe, maybe that's the kind of thing that they were actually sending up with that sketch. True. All right. Yeah. Oh, um, but we were talking about the false prophets, of course. That's yes. how. That's how it led me to yes, it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then, as Brian is escaping the pursuit of the guards, he haggles with Harry the Haggler for a beard. And gets a beard and a gourd. Yeah, you're supposed to haggle with me. You asked for 20, I gave you 20. You're supposed to haggle with me. I love yes. this. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. And I know that Brian is supposed to be kind of a, a dawdling sort of dude, but mm-hmm. I sort of feel like in that scene, he's he's not an idiot. He's just, he's just born way ahead of his time. Brian's an interesting character. I feel like we haven't really talked very much about him. He's part straight man. Because all of this stuff is sort of happening around him. He's not a very active hero. He's sort of more put upon. But he he's also very funny. There, there's a weird sort of childish, geeky, gawky quality to him. The way that he runs is very, very funny and kind of spazzy. And, uh, but he does have these ideas. Like, he, you know, he's, he's not a, a luminary like Jesus. He's, he doesn't have all of these, like, incredible ideas that are way ahead of his time. But he is, you know, sort of a more modern figure placed in this ancient context where things don't really make sense. Yeah, but he starts speaking to the masses, right? Don't judge others or you might get judged too. Yes. Oh, me? Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) He turns out to be a very effective false prophet public speaker. Although, again, it's in the same way as that, that first scene with the Sermon on the Mount, how people are taking apart like oh blessed are the the cheesemakers what's so special about the cheesemakers like it's just pointing out the, the little like logical things like uh what oh now he's having to go with the birds and now he's having to go with the flowers and like this man had two servants what were their names it doesn't matter oh you're making it up as you go along it's just you know the the very logical and, and pointing out the parts that don't that aren't really essential to the point of the story but are still funny <laughs> Um, right, right. I just, I wrote down this note that I pity the people who have so little joy and so little soul that they don't find this movie hilarious. Like, can you imagine being so blindly devoted to something that you might not even fully understand that it prevents you from finding this scene, which is perfectly innocuous? Like, you're supposed to side with Brian in this. You're supposed to side with, like, you're making a point in the form of a parable. And it doesn't matter what the servants' names are, but all of these people are just picking it apart. Like, that's the funny part. And I don't see why a Christian wouldn't be able to enjoy this. Like, well, right, because why do you have to look at it like it's blasphemous? Why can't you look at it 
like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if there were an idiot that people thought was the Messiah? Oh, isn't that hilarious? Because clearly Jesus was the Messiah. I right. mean, why can't you have both things in in your life? Jesus and a sense of humor about the time period. I mean, to be fair, there are a lot of people, I'm sure, who are Python fans and believe in Jesus. So I don't want to paint all Christians with the same brush. Christians as a group are are not known for their sense of humor about themselves, but that's only because the most vocal ones are the the stupid ones with the protest signs about movies that they themselves have never even bothered to watch. It's the people on the fringes of any movement, left, right, center, whatever, I guess not center because that's not, you know what I mean, uh, that are are going to get the most attention. So it's a very vocal minority. Well, did you read that they sent the script to a canon at St. George's Chapel? Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, well, they did. And the person who read it agreed that the script was not, in fact, blasphemous and said that it was, quote, extracting the maximum comedy out of false religion and religious illusions. Exactly. They did that before the movie was released, like just to for someone to give it their, you know, quote, blessing. And it was it was given. Someone saw it for what it really was. What's funny about this movie and the controversy that it inspired is that intentionally or not, The people who are offended by it are actually the people who should be offended by it. Because the people who, you know, have faith in Jesus and his teachings and have a good sense of humor about themselves and realize the damage and the absurdity that, you know, organized religion on a mass scale can have, they they get it. And then it's the people who are being made fun of in scenes like, yes, we're all individuals, we've got to work it out for ourselves. Even though they don't see themselves in that, they are the ones that are being made fun of. And it's so fucking funny and perfect that they are the ones who are offended, even though they don't get it. It's like they're accidentally yes. correct about the movie's target. Yes, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's something that's kind of genius about this, is that it, it works to to offend exactly who it's meant to offend, but they don't even know why. Well, you know, I mean, it also just kind of makes me question... <sighs> okay. Like, and clearly I'm asking as an outsider, I I don't, but why is a comedy about <laughs> someone who is not Jesus, he is in fact Brian, why is that not okay? But you've got Mel Gibson's gruesome, fucking violent snuff film about Jesus, and that is okay? I know that movie was controversial at the time, but... I think that the fucking priests were going to see it, right? Was That one wasn't banned anywhere because that was true. So it was like a true story. It's disgusting to me that yeah. somehow the very gruesome death of you know, a crucifixion. How terrible is that, really? It's, That's it's so, awful. It's so fucked up that the cross is the symbol of Christianity. That, that, it's like, so gross. That the way it that Jesus, but also like many other people died is the way that people like you you're holding like a a torture instrument of death on on your little necklace like what that's so weird that's like if i was saying like oh i'm a fan of of john lennon so i'm gonna wear a gun around my neck like you don't why is the way that someone died the symbol it's so fucked up isn't that and that's even even forgetting the the really creepy ones in the church that shows the bloody jesus on the cross like that what is what a really horrible disturbing image that like children are brought up oh normalizing that shit is truly fetishistic you've got a scantily clad chiseled man 
Oh, it's it's gross. It's very it's... weird. Yeah. And again, and this is not saying anything ab- against, you know, Jesus's teachings, which, again, I agree with. I do believe that Jesus was a historical figure. I don't know how well, you know, his, his speech was remembered 30 years later, as John Cleese aptly points out. But, you know, whether you believe he's the son of God or not, you can you can agree with the basic message. Like, that's good. It's the way that it gets bastardized by the biggest zealots among his followers that that is truly terrifying but but yeah it's a weird ugh, christian iconography is weird man yeah but again the question of what's an acceptable depiction of that time period versus what is not and I don't want to get into territory about maybe Christ shouldn't be depicted in film at all because I I also say why not but yeah. I mean why was like wasn't Ewan McGregor Jesus recently? You would know better was, than I. <laughs> I, I think he was in some damn movie where he was Jesus, which is stupid because I'm sure he had an English accent because we can't have a Scottish Jesus, even though that'd be fucking incredible. <laughs> Scottish Jesus. I would worship Scottish Jesus. <laughs> Look, I you. my father told you not to fuck your neighbor's wife, <laughs> and now I'm here to tell you that you should love your neighbor. But not necessarily be fucking your neighbor. <laughs> Look, I've brought you all this fish. You're going to wait your fucking turn. You're going to sit the fuck down. I've brought it. I made it. Oh my God. That's amazing. Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. Oh God. See, that's blasphemous in the eyes of plenty of people. Is this innocent joke about what if Jesus were Scottish? I don't think the Scottish Jesus movie would go over very well, but I really want to see it. I will will help you fund this. I want to see it. I'll be your George Harrison. (laughs) Bless George Harrison for putting up that money. Oh, seriously. Uh, What a saint. (laughs) But yeah, the idea of depicting Jesus, like... Yeah, I think that what the people who obviously have no sense of humor are objecting to is the idea that it's a comedy because you can have the, you know, the violence porn, the so sort of fetishistic, gross, like really graphic depictions as long as it's treated with complete seriousness. And this actually reminds me a little bit of um of some some production problems that they had with Holy Grail where essentially they had to film all of their castle sequences in just one castle. Did you know Mm. this? Because there Mm -mm. was only, um, they were going to use a whole bunch of different castles around Scotland. Uh, But then they they received a letter saying that they weren't allowed to use any like public castles because the, they they had read the the film script and they said that it was inconsistent with the dignity of the fabric of the history of these buildings or something like that. And, uh, and so they had to use just one castle that was privately owned. And so it's pretty fascinating that, like, you know, Castle Anthrax, Castle Arg, Swamp Castle, it was all just, you know, different rooms that were shot from different angles. And it's pretty impressive, the, the French taunter in the beginning, like, it, it's all one castle, and there were rooms repurposed over and over for different scenes, which is pretty ingenuitive and cool. But, you know, it, as stupid as that is, I can almost understand it because, well, I mean, it's stupid and it makes sense at the same time. Because if you think about the dignity of the history or whatever is like, you know, all of this death and torture and terrible stuff happened in those places. And it's messed up that you think that, you know, filming a comedy is going to somehow desecrate the meaning of that. But the flip side of that, which I'm sure is not how it was meant, but 
my only justification for that sort of logic is the idea that you know, it, it's maybe disrespectful to all of the death and the terrible stuff that happened there to do a comedy. I still I still don't agree with it. But like, do you remember a few years ago, there was an artist who did this online project called Yolocost? It was like, what? Okay, so there were some people who in very poor taste took these selfies of themselves smiling or like doing yoga stances or whatever, like at concentration camps at Nazi death camps and so this artist collected these tasteless you know holocaust selfies from the social media websites where these people had posted them and then put them on a website where you could like do that rollover thing with the mouse where then they were the, the people were photoshopped like they, they had their pictures and then they were photoshopped on top of like dead bodies like a pile of dead bodies straight out of the oven or like all of these images of the of the death camps actually in operation and it just showcased okay. like the complete poor taste of that sort of thing so that's or, or like a few years ago when I went to London for the first time I went to the Tower of London and you know I took the tour and I learned about all of the horrible shit that went down there and I took some selfies outside and I felt weird smiling in them I was like I, I guess I better be like kind of somber because it feels gross to be like lots of death and torture happened here say cheese you know that's my only justification but I think that in the case of Holy Grail like that would have maybe redeemed the castles a little bit to be because they're they're not making fun of specific atrocities it's just like a general take on the I don't know anyway that's that was a bit of a tangent but interesting but I but yeah I well but you know what Kaylee that just kind of circles back to the cross yeah your question of why are you upholding this symbol of the cross as something of hope and faith and love and everything that you stand by and it's it's an instrument of torture so yeah you know I guess I can understand more of hey people were tortured to death in this castle maybe not film a stupid sex comedy scene in it more more so than you know getting angry about god adjacent yeah no i hear that yeah i hear that so then brian so he's already got followers at this point and uh yeah then they start following him he runs away they he drops his shoe he gives someone his gourd and instantly they have (laughs) factions of brianism like there's the shoe people and then there's the gourd people and they they split and they disagree with each other and they fight and it's like some one of the python group described it as being like the history of religion in two minutes and it's it is. so it's so spot on. It's so funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also, I have I have yeah. just a weird question. Why does the gourd lady have an American accent when it is clearly not her natural accent? I did not notice that. It, it just it just seems weird. I mean, maybe it is, and she and I'm just bad at detecting that. But it seems like she's an English person doing an American accent. Maybe it's like I don't know spoofing the the stupid movies that were about Jesus where everybody had American accents, which is no less ridiculous than people having British accents in, in ancient Judea, but... I was gonna say, like, I assume you've seen the Ten Commandments movie, right? Oh, sure. They showed it to us in summer school at one point, because, Why? you know... What the hell class were you taking? It was about different religions in the fucking world, and they showed us the Ten fucking Commandments. Wow. But yeah, I don't know. I don't see how... Again, this is a point I've already made, but I don't see how Charlton Heston carrying the tablets is a less shocking image than Brian being Brian. Oh, yeah, I mean... In just about every movie where, like, someone's played Jesus, especially, like, in the the older ones in the 50s and 60s, like, there should never be a blue-eyed Jesus. That was not a thing. That is not a historically accurate. I mean, forget all the religious stuff and the miracle and the God, but, like, just strictly on a racial basis, like, that's... No, no Jesus is that white. I'm sorry. Like... That's, that, 
that's <laughs> that's another bullshit. fascinating thing to me is just sort of the the whitewashing of Jesus. Oh yeah, but yeah. no, I agree about how that's the history of religion in two minutes. Yeah, something that was vaguely misinterpreted and, and has caused great yeah. uproar and immediately schisms because of symbols such as sandals and gourds. I love oh, yeah. that it's a gourd. <laughs> it's it's hilarious. Yeah, it's so wonderful. So next, okay, so you thought of me during the ex leper thing. I then thought of you with Simon the Holy Man. <laughs> How often did you pause that scene? <laughs> Not once. Uh, all right, I'll take. I mean, I looked at his butt because it was right there. Yeah, but it, it uh, was. wasn't wasn't rewinding that scene. But um, eh. all I could really think about was an excerpt of an article I read about Terry Jones having to direct that day, oh, yes. dressed as <laughs> the hermit. And how Nothing Michael but a beard. at one point Terrence said to him, like, do you do realize you're naked? <laughs> <laughs> and that made me very happy. That's a really, that's a really funny, that's a really funny scene. And he mm-hmm. is also the first casualty of the religious zealots that follow Brian despite his wishes. Uh, mm-hmm. But there, yeah, the, all of the stuff, oh, it's a miracle. He has brought forth juniper berries and... And you know, every not listening to when he tells them to go away, it's it's really uh, that whole thing. It's so brilliant. I don't even have. I I sound stupid talking about it because it's too smart for me to make a smart point about. But damn, this movie's so perfect. What happens next? I I know that I keep trying to jump in, but I feel like you know the sequence so of next, order. After the crowd clears away with Simon the the heretic that they're presumably going to go murder, Judith is there, and then it's post sexy time. He wakes up with uh-huh. her. There's the, the infamous nude scene. I do have a memory of my ex-boyfriend saying that one time he was watching this with a bunch of cousins at a family gathering when they were like 12 or something. And he has an image of his aunt like leaping out of the other room to cover, to throw her body against the screen to shield them from the, you know, horror of Graham Chapman's penis. Oh, How that's my the God. thing that's inappropriate. <laughs> oh my God. That just made me think of when we were watching Short Bus at my house. <laughs> Do you do that you want to do the honors with that one? <laughs> well, you know, it's actually a nice little role reversal because instead of my mother diving in front of the screen to protect me from something, I was diving in front of the screen to protect her. Um, uh, if you've not seen Short Bus, it's a it's a John Cameron Mitchell creation from ooh. the early two thousands. It's and not there porn. Wink, lo- wink. It's not porn. It just happens to have a lot of graphic sex scenes and. Kaylee and I were watching it at my house years ago because I said, hey, I I got this movie on Netflix and uh, I kind of feel like you need to watch it. And there there was a great uh, homosexual threesome with these three men that eventually devolves into one singing the Star Spangled Banner. (laughs) The Star Spangled Banner into another man's ass Take that, and that Bush. was when my mom just innocently opened the door and went Steph I'm like ah and I jumped in no we watched so many bad movies together over the course of our long friendship but that is one of the highlights because not only did we watch this incredibly pretentious movie but then we immediately said oh my god there's commentary and we instantly watched it again with commentary and it was even better <laughs> the commentary was fan freaking tastic and they but they're talking about oh so 
in this scene, we were originally going to maybe have them sing a couple of Beatles songs. We, we tried it with some Beatles songs, but the Star Spangled Banner seemed a lot more appropriate. That's my bad. Oh, my Henry, God. John no, they were Mitchell. talking about how, like, we workshopped this scene for three months or something like that. And I'm like, oh, my God. So you basically just, like, rented a studio and, like, fucked for three months. Like, what the? F- it, anyway. Oh, yeah. Well, they'd been workshopping the whole movie for two years. It's the Emperor's New Clothes times a million. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, anyway, Graham Chapman Famous. wakes up naked, throws open the windows, and he has legions of followers who have followed him. Then his mother comes in <laughs> and is, is cross with him. And, you know, he's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. That was fantastic. She was great with the followers. Stop following my son. You ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Mm-hmm. I liked that a lot. It's wonderful. No, this is this is a great Mandy scene. And it's also probably the single funniest and most damning thing against sheep-like followers of organized religion. Look! You've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. You've got to think for yourself. You're all individuals. Yes, we're all individuals. You're all different. Yes, we are all different. I'm not. You all got to work it out for yourself. It works just on paper, funnily, but then when you think about all of the social and religious context behind it, it's such a brilliant point. Yeah, yeah. We've got to work it out for ourselves. Tell us more. Perfect. Yeah. Screenwriting perfection. My God. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. What do you think I should do? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, Tommy Wiseau (laughs) accidentally stumbling upon plagiarizing from greatness. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So Judith comes out and, like, protects Brian from his mother's wrath, which is a very funny thing. And, you know, I'm not... I had said in the Castle Anthrax scene, like, thank God they're clothes. Which, by the way, I learned was actually a decision on the part of the costume designer, Hazel Pethig. So God bless you, Hazel Pethig. I'm sure you're not listening. I have. I don't even... I tried looking for her on Twitter. I have no idea how to get in touch with her. But anyway, <laughs> in this case, I... You know, it, it's very, very funny. It's not just, like, a whole bevy of bathing beauties who are silent. She's an important character. And also, I think it makes me especially comfortable that she's in a scene with the two men who are also naked in the movie. Yes. And she's not filmed in a way that's kind of meant to titillate, I don't think. Oh, yeah, no. It's one of those rare examples where, like, the nudity of a woman is actually used for humor, but not in a way that's demeaning. It's it's used in the exact same way that Graham Chapman's nudity is used for humor. Also, that actress... So you had mentioned that this film had been banned from a lot of different towns in the UK. There was one town in Wales, I forget exactly where it was, I'll look it up, but she later on went to become... She went on to become the mayor of that town and lifted the ban, and they had like a special i don't know 30th anniversary screening or something isn't that fucking cool dude that's Sue amazing professional badass holy fuck crusader that's... for freedom of expression <laughs> that scene did end up on pornhub though oh of course it did that's hilarious to me i mean we talked the other week like who is searching for monty python sketches from holy grail on pornhub 
And I tried to make the argument, oh, well, it's one-stop shopping. You can watch one thing and then watch a comedy. Any, any movie nudity automatically ends up on Pornhub, so that doesn't surprise but me. I'm why? sure that Meaning of Life, The Topless Girls, that's got to be on all of the porn sites for sure. We don't even need to look. It's there. I understand that a little bit more because yeah. it's a bunch of topless women running, but it's like... Terry Jones is still very much in this scene yelling at at the naked woman. And that doesn't turn you on? <sighs> I don't know. You know, know you're not Mandy the only one on who feels list. that way about Mr. Jones. <laughs> Me and Mr. Anyway. Mr. Jones. <laughs> Goodness me. Yes. So then he's moving through the crowd that has filled his house. It not only does it capture the the weird mania of religion but also i'm not sure if this was intentional or not but the weird mania of fandom because i'm sure that the pythons themselves were subjected to this after their live shows i'm sure they would get mobbed just like the beatles in public um they probably still do to this day not everybody has the same restraint as you and your friends in the albertson's parking lot (laughs) um and it's this weird thing like i i mean you and i are obviously big fans of a lot of things monty python is only one of our several fandoms And there is that insane sort of heated frame of mind where you just obsessively want something from it. And I'm sympathetic to that. It's not something that I've ever experienced in a religious capacity, obviously, but... But it is a, it's a very bizarre phenomenon. It's, you know, it, it's the, it's Beatlemania, but it can be applied to things other than just the Beatles. I've experienced it so many times in my life, ranging from when I was 12 to when I'm 32 now. It's, it doesn't go away. It's weird. No, no. Well, it, it, and it's kind of funny because I know that you and I are also similar in that, you know, we can, we see the mania and we go, no, I want to distance myself from that because I want to be one of the good fans who, you know, really makes some sort of even three second impression on this incredible person by telling them, you know, how, how I uniquely, you know, worship them. And I'm going to do this by, Mm -hmm. we we both have that, right? We, we both, I, I never have seen a celebrity and interrupted their dinner to demand a selfie. No, I would never do that. But yeah, I can, I can be a weird, weird fan, <laughs> but in a more private way. Yeah, but that that's something that's interesting, too, is the idea that, like, these people, obviously, you know, their success is, is based on our love and our spending our hard-earned dollars or pounds or what have you on the work that they create and we consume. So, like, you know, they're, they're doing fine, but... You know, the idea that they've given us so much and that we still want more, the idea that mm-hmm. we feel entitled to taking up their time and energy and that we want, like, what what does their signature on a piece of paper prove? What does the, I don't want a photo with a celebrity because it doesn't mean anything to them. I say that, but no. I, I definitely did ask Reese Smith for a picture, but that was different. That was really special. <laughs> but um, getting back to the movie, the idea of you know everybody wanting a piece of the messiah and like oh my my wife has a cold i'm blind please heal me please do this do that like you don't need to personally get more things from these people who give you broad cultural things that everybody can enjoy yeah so then he gets he gets arrested oh and in the next scene we finally meet biggest dickus (laughs) biggest dickus unlike in holy grail where Graham is pretty much Arthur the whole time and is exclusively the straight man. I'm so glad that in this, while he is still the straight-est man, even though Brian is a little goofier than Arthur, I love that he also gets to play a really, really funny character as well. Like, his that speech impediment 
you know, Pontius Pilate plus Biggest Dickus is just my fit. It's so, it's so brilliantly done. Oh, yeah. And he's, um, he's pretty butch. Yes. Biggest Dickus. <laughs> <laughs> With a name like Biggest Dickus, you'd kind of have to be. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty much implied that Biggest Dickus must be Brian's father, right? No. Why would that be? Because they look exactly alike. <laughs> I never thought of that because, I mean... They look exactly like me as they're the same actor. That doesn't mean... I mean, that's like saying that Mandy must be Simon the Holy Man's mother. Okay, no. You're, <laughs> or or daughter. I mean, I don't know. Okay, you're right about that. Perhaps perhaps Biggest Dickus is not Brian's dad. But it just seems to me that if they're going to say that he's half Roman because he had a Roman centurion father and then you cast him as a guy called Biggest Dickus, you know, who has probably r- raped a woman in his time, being a Lothario named Biggest Dickus. It was, it was like, I don't know, is that so ridiculous? It's not ridiculous. It's no more ridiculous than this character or his name. But I mean, I just think that the idea that someone looking like someone else in a movie where all of the major roles are played by six of the same men, like, that's, that's a true. bit of a that's stretch true. to me. Okay. Well, but, you all know, right. we will pose your theory to the internet and see if any of our, our Twitter followers have any <laughs> input. Kind of like with the, uh, is She's Connie made of wood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So then we have the people's front of Judea having that fantastic scene of, you know, all talk and no action. And we need action now. And let's face it, as empires go, this is the big one. So we got to get up off our asses and stop just talking about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. It's action that counts, not words, and we need action now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're right. We could sit around here all day talking, passing resolutions, making clever speeches. It's not a shift. One Roman soldier. So let's just stop gabbing on about it. It's completely pointless and it's getting us nowhere. Right. right. I agree. This is a complete waste of time. What? What? Motion, completely new motion. Uh, that, uh, that there be uh, immediate action uh, once the vote has been taken. Well, obviously, once the vote's been taken, you can't act on a resolution till you've voted. Yeah, right. in the in the light of fresh information from uh, Sib and Judith. Yeah. Oh, not so fast, Reg. Reg, for God's sake, it's perfectly simple. All you've got to do is to go out of that door now and try to stop the Romans nailing him up. It's happening, Reg. Something's actually happening, Reg. Can't you understand? Oh! Yeah. Hello. Another little ego trip from the feminists. What? Oh, sorry, Dorothy. I know so many people like that. I am people like that, wanting to do something and only talking about it. Of course, really relatable and, um typical of that kind of group let's stop gabbing on the most politically on point thing about this is when the female is the voice of reason and then gets hilariously dismissed for sexist reasons like oh a little ego trip from the feminists and then loretta gets offended and then they say oh sorry loretta and it's so Mm -hmm. it's so perfectly apt that the the male-bodied person who identifies as female gets the apology for being offended but the woman is still dismissed for sexist reasons. Like, misogyny runs so deep that... I mean, it, it is nice that they do respect Loretta, but it's it's really shitty that they have so little regard for Judith that they don't take her very serious and not at all feminist-related points. No. 
Brian was going to get crucified. Yeah. They needed action now. Exactly. So then um, there's so much that they cram into this last couple minutes of the movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. They kind of go back and forth. And the, the climax is building and everything. But there's the crucifixion, one cross each line on the left. And Eric Idle being among the oh many God. who are going to be crucified that day. Crucifixion, no freedom. Oh, so good. I love Mr. Cheeky. I think Mr. Cheeky's actually my crush for this movie. Who's your crush for this movie? <laughs> um, Simon the Holy Man. Probably the former leper. Oh, the former leper. Oh, okay. All oiled up and shiny. All right, all right. <laughs> and no longer a leper. Yeah, yeah. But um, And then we have the, the speech at the palace. You know, most of those extras in that scene were recruited from Tunisia where they were filming. They had hired a Tunisian comic to make them laugh, but then they ended up not needing him because like everybody followed direction really well and everybody was really good at, at just laughing on cue. Fantastic. Yeah, were, like, I don't know, like 700 or something people just, just you know, laughing. And that was a really fun scene oh, wow. to film, they said. Oh, wow. Unlike with Holy Grail, which we had talked about how, you know, as, as fun as it looks on the screen, everybody behind the scenes was absolutely miserable. This was sort of the exact opposite. It was a much more harmonious working environment because they only had one director. They had more money. They knew what they were doing. They, they didn't have to like drive themselves to set the weather was a lot more agreeable they were all warm and and they weren't just soaking wet between takes it was a uh, it's great that what ended up on the screen is perfection just as i think holy grail is but they they all had a really lovely time filming this good finally judith gets to the crowd and says release brian and pontius Pilate does make the decision to release brian the pfj finally vote to go and then the climax happens where yeah that actually made me kind of sad. It's very sad. Of course, because I eventually did remember the actual ending. <laughs> I had forgotten about that part. I had forgotten that he had a chance to get away. But of course, nobody who's up on a cross wants to be crucified. And so they all start screaming, I'm Brian. And it was yeah. really powerful. Everyone's screaming, I'm Brian. Oh, and, yeah. and, and Brian, like looking so sad and, and defeated. And then they get to they get to take away... Mr. Cheeky, who has, in fact, escaped crucifixion several times before, yes. he reveals. Yeah, there's like five or six different little things. Uh, it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of the finale of Blackadder, where he misses every chance for somebody to save his life. And it's like the hope keeps running out and, and the time is running out. So, you know, Brian is up on the cross. The people's front of Judea arrive and they read a decree about his martyrdom. And then it's because he's yelling at them, you bastards. That's when they release Mr. Cheeky, who pretends to be Brian. And yes, the whole I'm Brian scene. And then the Judean people's front suicide squad that showed him, huh? Yes. <laughs> and then Judith comes as a, as a last little ray of hope and then says, oh, Rhett explained everything. It's great what you're doing. Bye, I'll never forget you. And then she scampers off. And then finally, the, the last bit of salt in the wound is the mother doing, you know, the, the classic Jewish mother. Go ahead, be crucified. And it's just, it's yeah. so sad. But then we have my favorite ending of any film ever, with apologies to Billy Wilder, I can't think of any better ending to any movie. It's That song is so perfect because it is everything. I mean, I, I love the song, even devoid of context. This is a movie that I fucking wish I could have been alive to see in theaters because I don't actually remember the first time that I saw that. But I can just imagine the like uproarious laughter that would happen 
Because it, 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 it's so random yet also so appropriate and earned. Like, I can only imagine how funny that would have been to see it in theaters when everybody else is just completely shocked and surprised. Yeah. Even knowing that it was coming, I, I was kind of wondering, I'm like, okay, so I know it's coming. I wonder... I wonder if it's actually going to have that much of an effect or if it'll just be, oh, that's the song. Yeah. And there really was something kind of, it, it was hilarious, but something kind of haunting about all of those, all of those bodies on crosses yeah. singing this song and just kind of going, yeah, we really did this to each other, didn't we? Yeah. I mean, not you and me personally and not, not <laughs> all over the world, but I kind of thought, yeah, but I just kind of thought, wow. And um, I sort of feel like in a way it's something that... <sighs> I know we've talked about how this movie, it's more of a joke than anything, and it's its meant to be, you know, laughed at, but we sort of should be made to look at, at these things, not for several hours with lots and lots of blood and gore, a la Mel Gibson, yeah. but... You know, we, we're kind of, again, your point about the image of the cross, it, we've sterilized it so much. Mm-hmm. Or we're looking at, you know, a bloody wood carving up, up on a wall, which is, you know, kind of weird in, in the opposite direction. And I kind of feel that, you know, uproar over smiling faces singing a silly song against a crucifix is sort of a perfect, like, meet in the middle <laughs> to, to make you think about the, the reality of it. And also, well... Look on the bright side. Yeah. Life's a piece of shit. The lyrics of the song are so wonderful. And, and the tune is so hummable. It's like, it, it's kind of like what we said about a lot of Python stuff. It, it is a Rorschach test because it is, as you said, it's very dark and very haunting and, and really terrible that, you know, these people are going to die in a matter of hours or days or however long it takes in the most gruesome way possible. And yet they're singing and there, there's something, you know, dark. It's fantastic gallows humor. It's, you know, the, especially when they start to do almost like a little bit of a chorus line kick to the extent that their legs allow them to. It's a fucking hilarious image. But there is some truth to it as well. And it captures my particular, you know, atheistic agnostic brand of optimism, which is, you know, there's there's nothing beyond this. So let's enjoy and appreciate what we have. And, you know, it, there, there, you can sort of interpret it either way because you can either say like, oh, it's really stupid and harmful that like these people are about to die and always look on the bright side of life. It, it sort of represents like the futility of faith. But it also, intentionally or not, stumbles upon one of the really beautiful things about faith, you know, because when, when you have nothing, when you have no hope, why not try to make yourself feel better? You can make your last few hours on Earth either be as good as they can or you can sit there and stew in your misery and you know we are all going to die life is a piece of shit when you look at it and and I love the the lyrics life is quite absurd that's a point that we've made before when talking about Monty Python and death's the final word we must always face the curtain with a bow it's such a lovely it, it captures my philosophy of life and why humor is so powerful even if it isn't powerful in solving the real problems that you're facing, like an attitude adjustment, sometimes it's the only option available to you. And I think that you should take that when you can. I agree with you completely. And I feel like one of the weirder things that this bishop says in the interview that I watched, Mm -hmm. he says, why lampoon death? Because it's happening to everybody. And those are his words. It's not why lampoon Christianity, why lampoon crucifixion? He says death. And I I didn't know that was a sin. 
I didn't know that that was territory that we as yeah. mortal beings who are all going to die can't make light of oh, now and again. Especially because if you're a Christian, don't you believe that it's only the beginning? <laughs> like that seems... There's that as well. But of course, because, you know, he's this quack, the rest of his thought is, I don't think we ought to make a farce out of Auschwitz. Well, gosh. And Michael Palin and John Cleese don't have a chance to say, well, we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> but, and, you know, but it's kind of that terrible argumentative tactic that a lot of conservatives use, which is, well, I'm going to take this Looney Tunes fucking example and try to make it sound like that's what you're saying. Yeah. Even though nobody's Nobody's lampooning Auschwitz, but death is the one universal thing. Like, apart from birth, every single person in the world will experience death, their own death at least, at some point. It's a guarantee, and it's terrifying. And I think that that's something that humor is so good at is explaining or making some sense of the things that we fear. I've mentioned my love of dead body humor and, and the hilarity of, of corpses in things. But like in real life, I'm terrified of corpses. I know that it's not normal to not be scared of corpses to some degree, but like I'd never want to be in the same room as a dead body. It, it's one of the scariest things possible to me. And yet... I don't know, maybe maybe the reason that I'm drawn to it in comedy is that it sort of calms my fear a little bit. Right, because there's nothing really scary about a dead body, because what's it going to do? What's scary Come is back that to you're life looking and eat at... you. I don't know. They're, yeah, rationally, recognize <laughs> exactly. you. But th what, th what's scary correct. is that you're looking at something that is ultimately going to happen to you when you don't like the look of it yeah. at all. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, why, why lampoon death? I don't know. Why fear death? Why celebrate death? Why why talk about it's it at all? It's just one way of why, interpreting it. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't I didn't understand why lampoon death, especially since, you know, in the Christian sense, it, it is only the beginning. It's not. Yeah, I don't know. And I think of all the things that you can lampoon. I mean, obviously, like, you know, don't lampoon the Holocaust. That's not what anybody's doing here. But death itself, it's sort of the great equalizer, because as I said, it's something that everybody experiences. So it's the one thing that we can all connect with and that we can all it's not like, oh, lampooning you know, I don't know, like like rape or something like that, or, or, you know, something that's racially based or something that only targets a specific group of people or like, you know, poor people or, or people with disabilities. It lets everybody in on the joke because it's something that we all face and that we're all probably scared of to some degree. And yeah, yeah it's it's the flip side of life and life in itself is very funny and absurd. And right. You can't have one without the other. Well, it's just one of the many fucking crazy arguments that this bishop and this Muggridge guy make. Muggridge says, if Jesus of Nazareth, or maybe the bishop said it, it's one or the other, but someone who is not Some Michael and John Cleese yeah, okay. says, if Jesus of Nazareth had not existed, this film would never have been made. Oh my and God. So that's, that's, <laughs> that's their argument for this movie must be about Jesus. I mean, if no one had invented the the camera, this film had never been made. I feel it's, it's not a joke about cameras. <laughs> like, exactly. Where does that end? And the Mugridge dude, for sure, this was an incredible part because I think that, well, of course, John Cleese had an incredible comeback, but yeah. it also just shows the deeply patriarchal, sexist side of, of the whole religion thing mm. and how he's talking about how the story of Jesus inspired every great artist every great composer, every great builder. And so I wrote in huge letters, you mean dudes, because 
that's what he's talking about because to him every great artist and every great composer is is a man which which right. is and because also from like western culture because there's other there's other religions too buddy exactly that part as well and he's just naming you know artist composer builder architect and kind of under his breath but just loud enough um john cleese goes germany the inquisition everything i mean <laughs> it yeah. was fantastic <laughs> that's that's so funny yeah i mean obviously jesus is something like what whatever your feelings about the the man or the religious icon it definitely changed the world irrevocably like you know the idea that oh this this movie wouldn't exist without jesus guess what nobody alive today would exist without jesus it's the butterfly Mm. effect going back so far the the world would be unimaginably different without it that doesn't mean that i mean oh that the, the inanity of that logic is just it's making me crazy. <laughs> I know, I know. But but you know what's really fascinating to me? Because this was 1979, mm-hmm. okay? So listen, the Muggridge dude says, if you'd have made that film about Muhammad, there would have been a hullabaloo. <whistles> and I love that there's always that argument, isn't there? Some white Christian dude always wants to point out, oh, but liberals freak out if we make fun of Muhammad. I, I, and I kind of yeah. can't believe that this guy even went there oh, can't this you, long though? ago. Yeah, oh, that. Well, well, yeah. I mean, well, you know, it was what I was saying about the 70s. It's like, why am I looking at something that could have happened yesterday? Yeah. This conversation. No, yeah, and yeah, yeah. To, to which John Cleese just says, you're right, Malcolm. 400 years ago, we would have been burnt for this film. But I'm suggesting that we've... <laughs> <laughs> I'm suggesting that we've made a advance. Like, yeah. it's like, dude, what? I just y- your point is only kind of going to upset people yeah. here. Let's let's not I, get into that because that's not what we did. I just don't understand yeah. how Christians can be offended by anything because, like, they're they're doing fine. Nothing's hurting their religion. It's not going anywhere. The idea that their, not their faith, but that their security can be shaken by the tiniest little things and threatened. Like, what what more do they want short of supreme world domination? Like, it, it, yeah, I don't know. My favorite thing was when he said that anyone who drudges this movie up in the future is not going to come away with it and compare it to something as beautiful as a cathedral. I will. I'll do it right now. I, I'm, I'm speaking to you from the future, Malcolm Muggeridge, and guess what? This movie is as perfect as a cathedral. Done. Mic drop, motherfucker. <laughs> oh, man. Well, yeah, that's that's the movie. That is it's the a movie. great fucking movie. I, I love this, and I'm really looking forward to seeing Meaning of Life because that's one that I know I don't remember that well. Dude, same. Or maybe I do, and I'll be surprised. Well, with the exception of that totally appropriate scene that our parents showed us when we were little, um, I yeah. don't, uh, I don't remember a ton of that one either, but I do know that it's going to be their most just kind of blatant. These are vignettes, yeah. you know, there, there's even the, the chapters in between, sure. you know, Holy, Holy Grail, it's definitely vignettes as well, but they, they string it together. Yeah. Um, and you know, Life of Brian, as you it's said, a it's, narrative. Yeah. It, it's a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Much like the first Sex in the City movie. I can't I believe you did that, that. That's blasphemy. I'm going to stone you. You're lucky we're not in the same room right now. <laughs> I, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I, I would love any excuse to bring it a Sex in the City discussion to anything that we're talking about. Oh, my God. Get out of here. No. That's... <laughs> no. No. No, no, no. 
anyway, so yes, join us next week when we'll talk about the meaning of life. Um, and in the meantime, love your fucking neighbor, or I'll come over here and I'll hit you with this fucking fish. <laughs> Always look on the bright side of life. Always look on the light side of life. If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten. And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing. When you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. And always look on the bright side of life. Come on! Always look on the right side of life For life is quite absurd And death's the final word You must always face the curtain with a bow Forget about your scene Give the audience a grin Enjoy it, it's your last chance anyhow So always look on the bright side of death Just before you draw your terminal breath Life's a piece of shit when you look at it Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true You'll see it's all a show, keep them laughing as you go Just remember that the last laugh is on you And always